Well, good morning. Uh, today we're continuing our study of the Old Testament book of Esther. And the events described in this book uh, occur around 475 B.C., long before the birth of Jesus, and tell the story of a group of Jewish people living in Persia, which is present-day Iran. One of the joys of being human is the promise of change. We don't have to stay the same. We don't have to be the same person a year from now that we are today. And this morning, we're going to read about Esther's transformation. Specifically, we're going to see how both a crisis and a challenge from a loved one acted as a catalyst that unsettled Esther and forced her to change. Change doesn't always happen, even in a time of crisis. And sometimes when it does happen, it's incremental. It happens slowly, and we can barely notice that we're changing for better or for worse. But sometimes the events that uh, force, force us uh, to change more quickly. We can't stay the same. Sometimes we just have to change. But even uh, then, how we change, the trajectory of our transformation, where we're going to land is up to us. And this is the case with Esther as we're going to read today. In case you haven't been here uh, along with us on this journey in the book of Esther, let me catch you up on this powerful story. In chapter 1, we read about a huge party that king, the king of Persia, uh, a man by the name of Xerxes, throws in order to bolster his support for his planned invasion of Greece. Toward the end of the party, Xerxes issues a drunken command. Bring my wife here to display her beauty before the boys. Well, Queen Vashti refuses to be degraded, and so Xerxes banishes her from his presence to save face. And I think she was probably okay with that because she seems uh, to be over playing the trophy wife. In between chapters 1 and 2, we learn from history that Xerxes does in fact invade Greece and the Greeks hand it to him. So he returns to his land with a depleted treasury, a, de a group of demoralized troops, and a degraded reputation. In chapter 2, Xerxes decides to medicate himself by indulging in sensuality, by rounding up the most beautiful virgins in the land to add to his harem, sleeping with them in some kind of grotesque search for his next queen. And Esther is a Jewish girl, although she keeps that information to herself, who gets wrapped up in this contest and, lo and behold, wins. Last week, we talked about Mordecai, Esther's uncle, who raised her after her parents died, and how he got into a confrontation with Xerxes' second-in-command, a man by the name of Haman. Mordecai, prompted by contempt, refuses to bow in Haman's presence. He doesn't respect Haman, and he's enjoying sticking it to him every time he gets the chance. And what Mordecai doesn't understand, however, is that Haman is a straight-up homicidal maniac. And Haman, prompted by hatred for his ancient enemy, the Jewish people, sees this as an opportunity to manipulate the king into signing the death warrant for all the Jews living in the Persian Empire. He promises the king that it would result in 10,000 sacks of silver to replenish the treasury. 
And King Xerxes, prompted by greed, gives him the okay. Now, although we didn't read this last week, within the book is an interesting look inside the ancient practice of casting lots. Basically, Haman rolled a dice to allow God, the gods to give him input into when the law should be enacted. And it's an interesting concept. In fact, you still find it in play even among Jesus' disciples. When Judas uh, hung himself, the other 11 disciples decide they would replace him, and they cast lots to ask God's help in choosing the right person. Kind of an interesting idea, but no thanks. I don't want to be rolling the dice when it comes to deciding what car to buy or what job to take or any other major decision in my life, do you? Anyway, Haman casts lots for the date, and it turns out that there will be 11 months between the signing of the law and when it gets carried out. So Haman sees it as a time to prepare people for what's ahead. It also turns out that it gives more time for Mordecai and Esther to do some soul searching and to come up with an answer. Now you're officially caught up. Today we're in chapter 4, and we're going to see the transformation of a queen. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, we see Esther being this timid and unsure girl. Mordecai tells her what to do, and she does it. The palace insiders tell her what to do, and she does it. Xerxes tells her what to do, and she does it. In fact, it's interesting to note that throughout history, commentators and scholars find little about Esther that's admirable. Some would prefer to talk about Vashti. She's the one who stands up to the king. She refuses to be demeaned. Esther seems too submissive. Where's her backbone to stand up to these controlling men in her life? Others throughout history look down on her because she's wishy-washy about her faith. She They want her to say to Xerxes, you know, how could I sin against God by sleeping with you out of wedlock? You're a Gentile barbarian. I will not do it, even if I perish. But up to this point, Esther doesn't seem to be that kind of hero. Now let's remember, if you read the Bible, it's filled not with superhumans, but filled with regular people. It's filled with people like you and me. And Esther was caught up in all that was going on, and she was doing the best with what she had. So we neither elevate her nor judge her. We were going to just let Esther be Esther. And so we come to the place in the story where a regular human being, Esther, will be forced to make a decision. And we get to see Esther mature and grow in courage and, yes, even godliness, We get to see her grow up, so to speak, and make a remarkable decision. In fact, Esther is called Queen, Queen Esther, 15 times by the author of this book. 14 of them occur after the events described here in chapter 4. So let's look at this chapter to, to discover Esther's keys to transformation. And as we read the story, hopefully we can pick up some pointers for ourselves along the way. Let's look at chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, and went out into the city, crying with a loud and bitter wail. 
He went as far as the gate of the palace, for no one was allowed to enter the palace gate while wearing clothes of mourning. And as news of the king's decree reached all the provinces, there was great mourning among the Jews. They fasted, they wept, and they wailed, and many people lay in burlap and in ashes. You see, transformation always begins somewhere. It's a process, and it has to start somewhere. For Esther, and even more so for Mordecai, the transformation begins with a crisis. If Esther were teaching a class on change, I think she would remind us that sometimes God uses a crisis to kickstart transformation in our life. Can you imagine how sick to his stomach Mordecai became when he learned of Haman's plan? Do you think Mordecai wished he could get back and do some things differently? Don't you think he would have bowed down and just let Haman have his moment in the sun rather than risk the lives of millions of God's people? Let me ask you, has life ever slapped you in the face? One day things seem fine, but then you get a phone call or a test result or a text or a pink slip, and one day things are going great and then something happens and then you know that your life is never going to be the same again. What are we to make of these situations? I'd like to encourage us today to allow crises to crowd us to the cross. Crises have a way of making us elevate our relationship with God and to God. And crises will normally either crowd us closer to Jesus or it has a way of eroding our faith. For sure, they cause us to re-examine questions we thought we had already settled. Is God really there? Is he really good? Does he really care about me? Is he able to help me? If he's a good God, then why am I going through this? Why now? You see, a crisis moves us. It rarely allows us to stay still. And I'd like to encourage you to make the decision now that when a crisis comes into your life, you're going to let it push you to the cross. For Mordecai, if we're honest, it appears that Mordecai has very little faith. God had dropped off his radar. And for Mordecai, this crisis woke him up. Maybe you're listening today because of a crisis in your life. And it woke you up and it made you think. It reminded you that you have an eternal soul. And for a while you've been honest. If you're honest to admit it, uh, you have forgotten about God. And you strayed away from God. I think we know that sometimes God has to get our attention. To snap us out of our complacency. To remind us that he even exists. Or maybe we sit around wondering, you know, did God plan this pain that I'm going through? Is he the cause of it? And my response to all that is no. God isn't necessarily causing it or doing it, but he is using it. What people mean for evil, God can use for good. And even here, God uh, didn't cause Haman to be evil. Haman had that already covered. But God is able to work all things together for good. So all that to say, you might be struggling today with a health crisis in your life. You might be going through a marriage crisis, and the pain you're enduring is such that you already look, you're already, uh, 
you aren't ready to look at the bright side of that pain. You aren't ready to see that God might use that crisis to make you more spiritually alive to him. So all I'm going to say to you is that God is there with you, and he is faithful, and he will not leave you, and he is working behind what can be seen. See, a crisis has a way of forcing the issue, of making us move. We can either move toward God or sometimes a crisis causes us to question God and to move away from him, but rarely does a crisis leave us in neutral. And I think that whether it drives us to him or away from him is in large part our call. For sure, it drives Mordecai back toward God, fasting, weeping, sackcloth, ashes, all of them are spiritual exercises. And even though the author is very careful not to even mention prayer, which was usually part of it. And again, the author seems to be purposely leaving uh, God out of this story, so to speak. But the reality is that God, even when he appears to be absent from the story, is all over the pages that are being written. He is working behind the scenes to bring all things together for good for those who love him. And we can trust God to do that. Thus far in our story, we see Mordecai using this crisis as a catalyst for transformation. Esther, however, is at a point in this story unaware of the crisis. It's not a crisis to her, at least not yet. So for Esther, the impetus for transformation will be uh, more than the crisis. Esther needs to be challenged. Verses 4 through 12 explain how Esther learns of Haman's plan. Mordecai tries to convince Esther to approach the king on behalf of the Jewish people and to seek his help. But Esther tells him that it's not that easy to do. For one thing, after five years of marriage, things seem to be cooling off between Esther and Xerxes. She says that she hasn't seen her husband in 30 days. Furthermore, a person doesn't just walk into the presence of the king uninvited. No, not this king at least. The penalty for anyone barging into the king's presence uninvited is a swift death, unless the king decides to show mercy. And if Esther were sharing her story of how she was transformed, I think that she would probably say sometimes God uses someone, often someone we love, someone we respect, to challenge us about how we're living. Sometimes we need to be challenged in order to change. Mordecai is sensing that Esther is reluctant to act. She's fearful that it might cost her everything, even her life. And I wonder if maybe Esther isn't also imagining that she might escape the persecution. After all, she's kept her Jewish roots a secret from the king for five years now. It's hard to imagine that Esther might sit on her hands and watch innocent people die. So either way, Mordecai wants Esther to wake up and smell the flowers. He flat out challenges her to do something about the impending suffering of her people. I want you to look at verse 13. Mordecai sent this letter, this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will, will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives 
will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Have you ever had a friend willing to stick their finger in your face and be willing to challenge you to reconsider the manner in which you are living, the manner in which you are conducting your life? It's unfortunate that we live in an age when it's commonly believed that a friend would never challenge the way we're living our life. We think a friend is supposed to have our back, never question us. But let's be real, that's not a friend. We don't need minions in our life, we need friends. And a friend is willing to say the hard things. A friend is willing to talk about difficult things to us as as an agent of transformation in our life. Now, it's often small challenges set in love that are powerful agents of transformation. In my opinion, we deserve to have a friend who isn't afraid to talk straight to us from time to time when our thinking gets off. And Mordecai is sensing that Esther's thinking has gone askew. He senses that perhaps she thinks she's going to escape all of this unharmed. So Mordecai challenges Esther to do a big thing and to do the right thing. And he does so in two specific ways. He is going to remind her of what God has given her. And he's going to ask if God didn't give her those things for a reason. First, he asks her to consider how she got to where she was in life and suggests that it was to help her people in such a time as this. And whether or not she desired to be the queen, God has placed her in a position where she has clout. Mordecai wants to know, how are you going to use your clout, your connections, your network, your resources? How are you going to use them for good? And really, that's a great question for all of us, isn't it? Are we going to use the clout that we have to feather our own nest? Or will we use the clout to serve ourselves or to serve others? What kind of human being are we going to be? And the deal is as true for her as it is for us today. In some ways, what Mordecai is asking Esther is this. You've been given the palace. Are you going to use your position in the palace for good? Or are you going to be a prisoner of it? Could not the same be said of us? If we are not willing to use the resources and the networks and the connections that we have for the good of others, if we are, if we are unwilling to part with them, then we are going to be a prisoner of them. See, crises and challenges are often agents of change in our life. Esther has both. And now comes the moment of truth. It's Esther's defining moment. It's Esther's defining choice. Esther has to decide if she's going to run at the problem or away from the problem. She can either do something or she can bury her head in the sand and hope that she'll still have a head at the end of the day. See, transformation never occurs accidentally. No one accidentally becomes more godly. We have to make a choice. It requires intention. Notice the way that Mordecai frames all of this. Without naming God, he certainly seems to be bringing God into the picture. 
Who knows what, uh, that you haven't achieved your position for such a time as this? That God has brought you to this place in your life in order to use it as a way of serving him and serving others. But Mordecai tells Esther, if you refuse to be part of this, then you can be sure that God will find another way. He will find someone else. Mordecai brings up an interesting point. God invites us to work alongside him to accomplish his purposes in the world. He offers us the privilege to be part of what he is doing. But here's the great truth. God placed us where we, uh, where we are, where we are at work, because he is working in the hearts and in the lives of everyone that surrounds us. He invites us to be part of that. And if we refuse, God will find another way to speak love and light into the people's lives around us. If we don't, the choice is ours. But who's going to miss out? It will be you. It'll be me. We can make our job into a job or an adventure, a mission or a day-to-day misery. In many ways, the choice is ours. God treats us with respect, treats us with dignity, and he allows us to make the call. God invites us to choose to be part of what he's doing in the world. And he, he loves to include us. He loves to share the joy of all that with us. And Esther chooses to be part of what God's up to. She's in. And the result, almost immediately, we see Esther begin to change. She is growing in her confidence. Listen to her, the one who used to take orders. Listen to her now, beginning in verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So we see in this book of Esther the transformation of Esther from a doormat to a leader, from taking commands to issuing them. Her transformation is kick-started by a crisis combined with a challenge to do something about what she saw. She chooses to be part of what God's doing, and the result is confidence. After all, if God is with us, then who can stand against us? God went through that process himself. First, he saw the crisis that we were in. We are like sheep without a shepherd. Sin had created a rift between us and God and needed to be dealt with, so he made a choice. He decided to pay the debt that we could never pay on our own. And the result is confidence. God became our father. Mordecai couldn't come to the king. He needed a mediator. He needed Esther to mediate on behalf of a doomed people. Jesus became our mediator between us and God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for every one of us. We serve a God who saw our distress and did something 
so that now through faith in Jesus Christ, we never walk alone. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we wonder what in the world we're doing, what our purpose really is, and if there isn't some big, huge thing that you're calling us to do. But the story of Esther helps us all to know that uh, you have placed us here on this earth for such a time as this, right now, right here. We are here for a purpose. Our children and our families are here for a purpose. Help us to point others to you, Jesus, every single day. Help us to look around and see that you have given us relationships and circumstances and places to share your grace and love with others. Help us not always to be looking for that big, huge, radical thing that you call some people to do, but live, just live the life that you've given us with joy and with contentment. And it's in the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen.